Let's start what I've come into the room to do. <laughs> right on. Here goes. Arbor and the world. This is It's Hot in Here, and this is WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and welcome to another exciting Friday. I am uh, one of your co-hosts, Jennifer Johnson, and right across from me is the fantastic and fabulous Andrea Kraus. Happy to be with you guys again today. Exciting. So we're going to have a fun show. Rachel Chatterton is going to let us know what's in season this season today, what you can find at your farmer's market and enjoy. Yeah. Can't wait to hear about it. <laughs> Woohoo! And uh, Andrea, can you tell us about our fantastic guests for today? Sure. We actually have two wonderful guests. Leon Lefsrud, um, and she's actually a postdoc working with the Herb Institute on campus. Um, I won't go into what exactly she's doing just yet. Uh, we'll let Teasers. her explain that later. Yeah. Um, and in the second half of the show, we're going to have a master's student from the School of Natural Resources joining us um, named Brittany Anstead, who is doing some fabulous work on energy independence in tribal communities. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, we're going to get a little serious right now. Uh, there was a major typhoon last week, as you all know, um, that uh, ripped through the Philippines. Now, um, over 3,500 people are said to be dead, 20,000, 12,000, excuse me, injured. Um, and at least a thousand missing. Very sad, very devastating. But it brings us back to last year's climate negotiations uh, that took place in Doha. And we just wanted to play a little bit um, of an appeal that the lead negotiator from the Philippines made um, at that time about one year ago. An important backdrop for my delegation is the profound impacts of climate change that we are already confronting. And as we sit here every single hour, even as we vacillate and procrastinate here, we are suffering. There is massive and widespread devastation back at home. Hundreds of thousands of people have been rendered homeless, and the ordeal is far from over. Madam Chair, we have never had a typhoon like Bopa, which has wreaked havoc in a part of the country that has never seen a storm like this in half a century. And heartbreaking tragedies like this is not unique to the Philippines, because the whole world, especially developing countries struggling to address poverty and achieve social and human development, confront these same realities. Finally, Madam Chair, I speak on behalf of 100 million Filipinos, a quarter of whom a quarter of a million of whom are eking out a living here in Qatar. And I'm making an urgent appeal, not as a negotiator, not as a leader of my delegation, but as a Filipino. I appeal to the whole world. I appeal to the leaders from all over the world to open our eyes to the stark reality that we face. I appeal to ministers. The outcome of our work is not about what our political masters want. It is about what is demanded of us by seven billion people. I appeal to all, please, no more delays, no more excuses. Please let Doha be remembered as the place where we found the political will to turn things around. And let 2012 be remembered as the year the world found the courage to do so 
to find the courage to take responsibility for the future we want. I ask of all of us here, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? If not here, then where? All right. So, yeah, so the, the, the effects of climate change, these massive storms, unprecedented as far as we know, um, affecting human life uh, is indeed not just something that is affecting the Philippines but it in indeed as as the negotiator said all of the developing world if we'd like to call it that uh, i looked for some filipino music that would suit us but again i returned to the continent that i know most about so this is sorry sorry by femi kuti <laughs>
So um, we think this is a really great segue to introduce um, our first guest, who is named Leon Lefsrud. Uh, she's a postdoctoral student at the Herb Institute and um, is originally from Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about your background, what you've studied in the past, and what led you here? Sure. Um, my background is uh, a bit of a, a confession time. I'm an environmental engineer by training. That's my first degree. And you then don't I did... have to apologize for that. Well, <laughs> I'm uh, amongst a bunch of social scientists now, and I tell them I'm an environmental engineer, and they're like, oh, uh-huh, okay. <laughs> um, so uh, my master... They're jealous. Well, I don't know. Um, but... Um, I've uh, come over to the dark side, I suppose. That's what my environmental engineer friends think. Um, Mm. I have a master's in environmental engineering and sociology. I worked in industry for a while, a bunch of different heavy industries. And what struck me about a lot of industry is that um, the decisions they make about the environment tend to be very much uh, trial and error. Mm. And um, rather than taking a more uh, thoughtful uh, risk management approach or or even kind of understanding all the scenarios of, of say, something like climate change, um, they tend to be... I wouldn't say ignorant, but certainly oblivious to um, some broader issues with regards to um, uh, the impacts that their organization can have uh, on society and the world more generally. And mm. uh, organizations are, are, are starting to supplant uh, the nation state as, as being the most influential force in the world. And by and organizations, are you are you meaning corporations or organizations in general? In, well, it could be corporations. It could be someone like the EU, like a government. It could be... Um, so I study organizations, so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, large, it, and it could be like a small um, entrepreneurship um, uh, or it could be um, something bigger, something transnational. Uh-huh. Um, and um, so it struck me that they had a very limited sense of of the decision making processes. They tended to be economic. They tended to be more short term, quarter by quarter results. Uh-huh. And I thought, gee, you know, this doesn't make much sense to me. Um, I don't think solutions to a lot of the the uh, sustainability questions are technical solutions mm-hmm. or regulatory solutions. I think they tend to be more uh, social and business solutions. So the reason why I, I, I did a, a PhD in, in business strategy was to look at uh, understanding the language that, that businesses and, and organizations more broadly use um, to define um, environmental problems and the solutions and motivate action. So that's um, what motivated my PhD. That's what I, I did my research on um, for my PhD in the oil sands. Um, and then um, I, I work um, my research uh, very broadly in terms of language. So the use of language in how we talk about things affects how we think about things and how we manage things. So um, a lot of companies use languages of war, like um, like we're going to kill them. We're going to obliterate the competition, right? <laughs> yes. Which is a certain sort of attitude, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jack Welsh, yeah, we're going to we're going to kill them. We're going to, I mean, that sort of language. Um, but uh, if we can then um, shift our understanding of the role of organizations and shift our language uh, to uh, more um, uh, cooperative, to, to broader and longer term, then I think that we can, um, again, shift our, our understanding of, of how uh, we can solve some of the, the biggest problems facing the world, including things like climate change. So you said you've you've worked or studied different types of organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen that language be different in different sectors of society, or do some of the NGOs that are engaged in environmental issues also use sometimes that art of war language that um, the business world tends to 
uh, tends to use and maybe even people within more grassroots efforts what what kind what kind of language are you seeing used by different groups of people. Well, th- that's a very that's gets to the heart of my research, oh, Andrea. Wow. Good, excellent question. <laughs> Way Be- to go. Because um, sp- I st- study rhetoric, which is the art of persuasive speech. Mm-hmm. So, um, what a speaker needs to do is to understand who his or her audience is and the kinds of language that would could be used to appeal to that audience. Mm-hmm. So sometimes. Uh, an NGO, it wants to appeal to um, a corporation, they would use very much business languages so that they can, um, again, talk in the language of the business case such that they capture their attention and, and, and show that they understand mm-hmm. each other somehow. Yeah, yeah. so that they understand each other, that they create this shared understanding, this shared space. Uh-huh. But um, more and more I'm seeing, um, I don't want to call it, well, it is an entrepreneurship of sorts, but it's it's not, it's beyond just sort of an economic entrepreneur hmm. uh, or social entrepreneur. It's almost like a linguistic entrepreneur in which they can craft or shape the language such that they can shift it off of exclusively economic terms and shift it more into sustainability language. So um, you you tie into their, their understandings about business and then you can then... Um, you talk about economic sustainability, they get that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then you mm-hmm. can talk about social sustainability. Okay. It's the communities in which you're doing work. And then you can start talking about environmental sustainability, the environment in which people live, in which, you know, where you're doing your business and, and the fact that it's it's integral to your, your corporation and how you act. So then you can start to you see the shift of, of introducing certain key words and then um, shifting the meaning such that, again, it's very much sort of a linguistic entrepreneurship in terms of, of, of connecting with them on their language, on their ground, and then starting to shift the understanding um, very much so. So it's how do you connect with your audience and then mm-hmm. how do you start to shift, shift the discussion or shift the debate? And you can do that very much through language. Hmm. I like that building building a foundation that that you can understand immediately, as you said, with the economic, and then and then building on from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were taking uh, the musical, the last musical break, you were commenting on um, the the clip we just played, mm-hmm. uh, the appeal to take concerns about climate very seriously, mm-hmm. and and pointing out actually some interesting ways um, that the negotiator was was using that or, mm-hmm. or, uh, and drawing people in. Could you share that with our audience? Because I think it was so fabulous. Well, thank you. <laughs> you but yeah. it's, it's almost like we planned this in advance, you guys. This almost. is the beauty <laughs> of, of live radio and minds coming together. Oh, Things just happen. Beautiful minds. <laughs> think alike, I must say. Indeed, I'd like to thank my, my gal, Marissa Micah, for sending me that clip. She says, you must play this on the radio. Yeah, so she must have known. Yeah, she's yeah. very thoughtful. Thank you. Thank you to her. Kudos to her. Um, what struck me is that um, about this is... Um, I study I study climate change, and one of the things um, uh, some of the research I did in um, in 2007 it was a, a survey of over 1,077 engineers and geoscientists about the beliefs about climate change. Uh-huh. And these folks were in Alberta. Uh, the majority of them work uh, either directly or indirectly for oil and gas companies. Uh, so to understand the different uh, segments or audiences in terms of 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 how they consider climate change, um, one thing that struck me as you were playing that clip from the ambassador from the Philippines. Um, is um, not only do you need to understand the position um, from where someone is coming from and the language that appeals, um, but uh, rhetorical analysis tells us it's it's this language that creates a sense of, of shared identification. Mm-hmm. It's also um, the emotion of the appeal. Emotion captures attention. And one thing that really struck me as he was speaking is how much emotion he showed. His voice cracked. He was... He was 
I mean, I couldn't see him, but he would have been visibly upset. Um, he said, please, please, please help me help my, my people make this the year that, that this is, that we, ma- that we make a change for, for difference. Yeah. Um, so it was that, em- that emotional appeal and emotion is, is very powerful. Uh, social movement research talks about emotion as being hot cognition. So it's something that hmm. captures our attention. Like immediately we're riveted. We, we have to, you know, we have to look at the person who's crying or we have to, we can't stop ourselves from it. But emotion also works in, um, in concert with uh, logos, with the logic of an argument. Uh-huh. So we pay attention to things and listen and more likely to trust the logic of someone that we care about, that we like, right? right. It also works uh, in concert with ethos, which is the credibility of the speaker. Mm-hmm. So I'm more likely to believe you and think you know what you're talking about if I trust you. Yes. Right? Yes. So it's, it's the emotion of the argument, which he showed very, very clearly. It was this identification, please, please, please help us. But to be able to combine that then with, um, again, the, the logic of an argument. Mm-hmm. So once you've captured their attention, how do you then establish um, like a credible argument? And then also establish your credibility to speak. So it's your, your, your ethos, your, it's your credibility as a speaker. Mm. Um, and there's very interesting ways in which um, you know, research shows that this can have a huge impact. And one of them is uh, some research just, um, it's not out yet, it's, it's under review, uh, Forrest Briscoe, uh, and and others talking about the humanizing tactics, and it's mm. it's uh, on campus student groups who are opposing um, their university's uh, sourcing of gear, like all the M Den gear from sweatshop labors, right? So, and they're like, oh my gosh, it, we don't want this. Mm-hmm. Uh, they try to make an ec- economic argument, purely logical logos argument to the universities, and they're not listened to. They're not heard. Right. So what they do is, and it's brilliant, it's absolutely brilliant, is because they as students, you know, whatever, middle class students who haven't really suffered and don't really know about sweatshop labor, they have no credibility to speak, right? Um, They don't even have any emotional appeal. So they bring in actually folks who've worked in sweatshop, um, sweatshops to speak on their own behalf. And what they do is... Yeah, it's it's crazy super powerful because you know, like the like the the ambassador from the Philippines, they're saying, you know, this is what I've gone through. You know, I'm a 14 year old girl and I'm working to support my whole family, and these are the hours, and this is how much I'm paid, and you know, this is how horrible, scary, dangerous it is there, mm-hmm. and it's the emotional appeal. She's got the credibility to speak, and it's the logic of her argument. No one can argue with her. Because she knows firsthand more and better than anyone. And this research uh-huh. shows, um, this Forrest Briscoe's research, that, that student groups who do this uh, with their, um, their, their, their purchasing agents of their universities are significantly more likely to be successful in having their universities change suppliers. So um, kind of the, the summary of this is um, emotions important to capture attention, attention, but couple that with the logic of the argument and the credibility of the speaker. And it's, it's super crazy powerful, very, very powerful. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think we can all attest to the fact that a powerful story delivered by a person is, just tends to get us a lot more. It's, and I, I suppose, given the fact that we're all flooded with information, with data, mm-hmm. you know, advent of the internet, and mm-hmm. we know so many statistics about so many parts of the world that it, you know, we're, we're almost kind of immune to it at mm-hmm. that point versus... Mm-hmm a powerful story delivered by the person who has experience within that mm-hmm. is it, you can't ignore it. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, numbers, sure. They give a scale like 3000 dead. I mean, that's horrible. It just heart wrenching. 
but numbers have a way of distancing ourselves from yes. things. Like it's just another number. Right? I mean, that sounds really horrible. But I mean, even, I mean, you do work in Africa, mm-hmm. um, Jennifer, when you talk about like just I mean, all the horrible things in Africa, you know, displaced peoples, starving children, all these things, you put all these numbers and it's, it, people become almost immunized to it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, um, uh, save a child campaign when you have the one beautiful child could be your child it could be anyone's child it speaks to people in a way that is is it's they can't resist mm-hmm. like it's it's completely mm-hmm. un like it, it, it's is it irresist- i mean they can't resist it just can't resist mm-hmm. so it is it's the story from the one as opposed to the numbers of the many mm-hmm. and if you can somehow make it real make it an individual make it a person someone that you can connect with it's 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 so powerful it's so crazy powerful I mean, there are also, though, like problematic associations with crafting a story about an entire continent based on one child in one specific place or 10 or or whatever, Um, because indeed there are places where there's abundance of food. Right. Or, oh, it's an environmental famine. Well, we're not looking at the I know. perhaps military-led conflicts. Or anyway, I, I it's it's a very it's <laughs> absolutely simplifying, that. absolutely simplifying. Right? Absolutely. But it's powerful. It is, and it motivates people. Right, and and that's important to absolutely. recognize. Right, we should check out a tune. Okay, one ones which you suggested. This is uh, everything is moving so fast oh, by like the Great Lakes swimmers. Okay. I also love the Great Lakes. So there you go. Don't we all? <laughs> And what kind of force Must there have been to drive you here Was it uplifting Or was it deformed Faulting and rifting You folded What does it feel
Wonderful song. That was great. I had never heard anything actually by, what was it? The Great Lakes Swimmers. Swimmers. Uh-huh. They're Canadian. Ah, yes. I, I like to say I have never met a Canadian I don't like. Really? Yeah. Well, I can introduce you to some. I was going to say. Like. Yeah. But then you think there's also people who have left their country and they tend to be quite interesting and, and fun and exciting. Um, so, so um, But for- it's true. For those of you just tuning in, uh, we are talking with Leon Lefsrud about the power of stories. And um, Leon, you just told us some really excellent things about um, how to effectively communicate something. And as you said, it's through the power of a story, of an individual story. Mm -hmm. And uh, as so, you know, I'm a student at the business school as well at Ross. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that uh, communication has become a much bigger focus Mm -hmm. of the general business curriculum. And as corporations as well as you know just anyone really becomes more aware of the importance of being more savvy about the way you communicate something i wonder uh if this is also something that could become more uh liable to manipulation whether a human individual story is also something that we're learning to craft and sort of produce uh in order to get what we want so i was wondering whether you could also speak to us um about that and whether you've done any work on who gets to tell stories and uh, you know how how that's Mm -hmm. how that's shaping up yeah, um, excellent, excellent question. Um, with regards to who uh, has the right to speak or how do you establish your right to speak, um, there's a, a couple of interesting ways uh, in which um, I've seen this. And one is, again, the use of images or imagery is a means of capturing attention. You know, we talk mm-hmm. about, you know, a Save a Child campaign, which can be seen as being, you know, manipulating a story for a certain purpose, right? Um, but... Uh, at the same time, you say, okay, now what's what purpose is this? And how can we tell it in a way that is most resonant to the audience, right? And yeah, I mean, the one child does not tell the story of all of Africa, but if you want to have support for a certain population, then that's one way of doing it. Absolutely. Um, so images are very powerful. Um, the other in- really interesting thing, and it's from my dissertation research, is um, oftentimes... Um, uh, the important conversations are held behind closed doors. So there are the um, there are the the board meetings, or it's a regulatory review hearing, or it's some sort of smaller group uh, in which um, uh, you got a lot of um, a lot of group think going on, right? Right. So how do you um, as a as a, a challenger to kind of the, the the dominant order or to to incumbents in, in their power? How do you uh, get in there and and have um, a different voice being heard? Um, my dissertation research shows that um, uh, public review hearings for something like like the Keystone XL pipeline and mm-hmm. I use stuff on on oil sands. Um, although they're public, they tend to be fairly private affairs, mm. effectively. So. Um, uh, because they have certain uh, restrictions or, or rules of admissibility and who's who's uh, allowed to, who's properly, who's affected and who can be granted intervener status such that they are able to speak in the hearing and be heard. Uh-huh. So um, they tend to be fairly closed affairs. But um, my research has shown that um, uh, uh, ENGOs, even as far as the UK, were able to insert their meanings and in- effectively insert themselves into the hearings uh, with two different ways. The one is if you've got um, um, so an advocate in the hearing itself who can bring your meanings in and act as kind of your, your proxy, if you will, such that uh, you can speak through that person, right? Mm-hmm. right. So that's mm-hmm. um, uh, 
I mean, if you're coalition building or something like that, um, another way is, is they can have their meanings, um, um, maybe not through a person directly, but um, be heard. And uh, an interesting thing is, is, is Greenpeace and other um, uh, UK environmental groups staged a whole series of campaigns against the oil sands uh, around Parliament in London, mm-hmm. um, at, um, at shareholder meetings, um, both for oil companies as well as for the funders of oil companies, uh, who said, look, you know, stop, um, stop investing in this dirty oil. Um, and effectively, uh, what that did is, is um, uh, especially in the Total hearing in 2010, they became extra sensitized to these this, this broader environmental um, debate concern about climate change, about water usage, uh, about uh, contamination of the river, such that Total themselves ended up putting additional conditions uh, over and above what the regulatory requirements were. So they ended wow. up um, self-regulating, again, beyond what the regulatory requirements were. And it, in a large part, it was because of these foreign uh, ENGOs able to, in a very visual and emotional way, capture attention and say, you know, highlight the, the inconsistencies or the hypocrisies associated with certain kinds of business doing certain kind of activities. And then... Um, be able to push those meanings right into the regulatory hearing such that um, the the companies changed because they they talked to the company's shareholders at their shareholder meetings uh-huh. and because they talked to the company's funding agencies. So it would be um, the Royal Bank of Scotland or um, Credit Suisse, so reinsurers. So it it maybe wasn't to the, to the company directly, but it was, again, through their shareholders uh, or through their funding agencies, which then uh, caused the company to then change their behaviors. So wow. it was. It's it's another way in which you can then think about. Well, if the front door isn't open, is there a side door? Is there a back door? Or do I need to dig under the foundations? So then you can think about um, maybe not talking to your audience directly, but then speaking to them indirectly through right. others uh, or through other meanings or through through others that they would listen to. So that's another way in which you can have your story heard or establish your credibility to speak. Um, Although it may not be direct, it could be indirect. So did you, and I don't know exactly to what detail you know about, um, you know, the the shareholders of Total being reached out to, but did that message have to be financialized for that to be effective? I mean, did they have to really communicate in terms of this is going to hit your return on investment in such a way? Or was the appeal more on the human and emotional side? Oh, um, both. It okay. was, and the thing that struck me in my, my this research is that the, um, Oil companies stick to kind of a mono message, right? They're, they're kind of a one-trick pony where they only talk about economics right now and in the future and um, economic sustainability. Um, uh, challengers, um, like environmental groups and others, are um, have like their um, like a, a suite of, of choices that they're that they're using. So it's it's not just economics. They're okay. also talking or, or challenging the economics. Uh, they're also talking about the environment. They're talking about um, higher moral ideals, about um, the preservation of all life, not just human life. So it's 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 a it's a, a range of, of arguments that they're using, a much uh, a broader range and a much broader range of tactics. It's not just logic the the logic of the argument. It's it's the emotion of the argument and it's the the ethos. It's the credit establishing the credibility of the speech. So rather than kind of, like I said, a, a mono message, it's much, um, oh my gosh, much more strategic, uh, much more um, uh, a broader range of, of activities and they're, they're, they're hitting on all cylinders. So it's, it really is a very, very uh, sophisticated uh, approach. And effective, mm-hmm. it appears, mm-hmm. which is brilliant. It's the time. 
Hey, you know what that sound means? I wonder, what is the season? What's in season? What is the time of the season? Hi, Rachel. Hi, how are you? (laughs) Great, this is Rachel Chatterton. Uh, She's on the phone, uh, perhaps calling live from the Fair Food Network here in Ann Arbor. Yes. I'm and I'm calling to talk about what is in season. What's in and season? I was racking my brain for a fall vegetable I haven't already talked about on the air. Mm-hmm. And I realized um there's one I have been overlooking and that is dry beans. <gasps> Tell me more. So Please. I'm going to talk a little bit about I love dry beans. beans. Today. I'm really into dry beans right now. It's... I think they're um, these they're so amazing. They're these amazing little packets of protein that just grow out of the ground. Um, it. And it's so much a more um, thermodynamically efficient way to get your protein intake um, compared to eating meat. So, um, What do you mean by that, thermodynamically? I can, I can encourage people to eat some more dry beans. Well, um, just in terms of the, the energy that goes into producing the amount of protein, mm-hmm. if you are eating protein from a plant source like a bean, all that went into that is is the the, pho- the sun and then the photosynthesis. But as opposed to if you're eating, um, say, chicken or or cattle that had um, consumed that bean, there's an extra layer of energy loss um, in producing that protein source for human consumption. Gotcha. So um, the real green way to eat is to eat as little meat as um, you're comfortable with and as is possible in your diet and lifestyle. So beans are the way to to make up the difference. Hmm. And they and go great Michigan, with bacon, as you were mentioning. What was that? They grow great with bacon, as you were talking about the other day. Really <laughs> Rachel do. confessed that her main meat source is bacon. <laughs> That's true. That is my main meat source. But yeah, bacon is an excellent flavoring. Just like one or two strips of bacon mm-hmm. with takes. your beans makes it taste like you're eating a big bowl of meat. Um, so it's fantastic. Um, but Michigan happens to be one of the top producers of beans and actually one of the top producers of what are considered very high-quality beans. Michigan has an excellent climate and soil type for growing really high-quality beans. So it, it has to do with the, the moderate daytime temperatures, the moderate amount of precipitation, the loamy soil, thanks glaciers, um, and the um, the seasons that we have make really excellent beans. And when I used to work at the Michigan Department of Agriculture, someone there actually told me that black beans from Michigan are considered like the top quality bean in Mexico. So that's what everybody wants to eat in Mexico are beans from Michigan. (laughs) And about half of the beans we grow in Michigan are exported. Um, It blows my mind. Can we... Get these beans it's the at, season yeah. for beans right now because um, they're harvested um, from August to October um, after the beans are mature on the plant. But then there's a lot of processing that actually happens has to happen with beans once they're pulled out of the field. So they're pulled out of the field and then they're run through a combine to take the individual beans out of the pods that they're in. And then they need to be kind of sorted and graded and packaged and, and sent where they go. So now is about the time you would start to see the fall harvest of beans. Are we able to see those at the farmer's market? I've never paid attention. There, there are a few growers of beans at the farmer's market. They're hard to come by, and most growers who are at the scale to sell at a farmer's market are too small of a scale to have a lot of the equipment that makes 
bean farming efficient, mm-hmm. like a large-scale combine and cultivator and you things You could just like beat that. them on the ground. That's um, what we do in so Uganda. So a lot of the beans you'll see at the market, you'll see at markets that allow farmers to resell their neighbor's product. And so they might live next to a bean farm, and they're bringing some cranberry beans from that farm huh. along with the vegetables that they're growing. Delicious. That's the most frequent thing I've seen at markets. Um, but you can do like anything with beans. You can you can make them into dips. You can make them into soups. Um, you can put them in casseroles. Chili is awesome. Um, Asian cuisines rely on the red adzuki bean for desserts. Actually, they they cook the beans and make them into a sweetened paste that goes into ice creams and pastries and things like that. So they're they cover every aspect of the meal. Um, soybeans, of course, can be made into milk, which can be drunk or added to your coffee. They do everything. So many uses. They're magic. Magic beans. Magic. <laughs> no wonder there's a major fairy tale written about them. Fantastic, Rachel. So what are you going to make with beans this weekend? I'd like to know. Um, well, last weekend I made chili. Yeah. And this weekend I think I'll probably make some refried beans and have tostadas. That's wonderful. I think that's the plan. Well, hey, thank you so much for telling us what's in season. Yeah. You're welcome. We really, Thanks really appreciate it. It's great to be here. And now I'm quite hungry for beans, to tell you the honest <laughs> truth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish you a tasty lunch after the show is done. Well, thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. All okay. Right. All right. Thanks, okay. Gina. Bye. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you to Rachel Chatterden from the Fair Food Network telling us about beans. It's funny, in Uganda, the same kinds of beans, like the same, we call them dry beans, but if they're like just picked Mm -hmm. and processed, in Uganda, they're known as fresh beans, as Mm -hmm. opposed to dried beans that have stayed there for a really, really long time. Ah, yes, in Panama, they're new beans. New beans. Mm -hmm. And you want to get those because it requires less fuel to to prepare and to cook. Mm -hmm. And they're more delicious. They Mm -hmm. are more delicious. So get yourself to your latest, your local bean distributor for some high quality Michigan beans. Hopefully you won't have to go all the way to Mexico to find them because that's a, a, a major export there. Okay. Should we play another moment of a song and then get us back on track? What do we have? This is a, a, another pick um, here. This is lay down my worries. A little bit of that from Harry Manx. speed of light Got the rhythm now down in my bones But I I've been around so long it seems I turn around Lord to face my home You stood there darling Always ready for the unknown I want to to, I'm gonna lay down my worries Lay down my worries We 
We work so hard just to make things right. We don't mind living out of need. No. Long as you're there, girl, just to shine your light. Well, I'm gonna, gonna pray for all God's speed. Lord, you bring me comfort. Likes of which I'll never know. And I want to. Lord, I got to. I'm gonna, gonna lay down my worries. folks you don't need to carry them around with you all the time oh they're heavy so heavy they are heavy yeah an incredible incredible burden so you heard it here first folks stories matter Yep, they do. Individual stories matter, emotional stories, and it's it's the way we were just saying. That's the way you connect with people, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So research shows stories matter. Absolutely, <laughs> we have this idea that like no, all rational decision making is based on facts and numbers, and but it, it no, if you can have a narrative, uh-huh. it's important. We should all work on our own. Mm-hmm. Wow. Absolutely, and we're going to hear some great stories from a new student at the School of Natural Resources and Environment. Who is now with us? Brittany Onstead. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome to Michigan, perhaps. And yes. welcome to Ann Arbor. And welcome to It's Hot in Here. And welcome to WCBN. Thank you. <laughs> That's a lot of welcoming. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and actually, um, Leon uh, Lefstrud is heading to a conference call to listen and probably tell some excellent stories of her own. So we should say goodbye and say thank you very much for, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll check in with you again. I look forward to that. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, right. seriously. Excellent. Take care. <laughs> <laughs> We're in and out today. So, um, Brittany, uh, where are you joining us from? Where, where are you from? Tell us your story. All right. Well, I'm from North Carolina, hence the accent. Oh, okay. <laughs> I love the accent. I just think the Southern accent is the best ever. But I'm also from Texas, so I think like being close by, um, I grew fond of it. Oh, yes. well, thank you. Um, I'm from a small community, Hollister, North Carolina. Uh, it's mostly consisted of my tribe, which is the Hollowasaponi tribe. And we're about 4,000 members and about 3,000 of us live there. Oh, so wow. it's a middle of nowhere, tight knit community. Really? Yeah. So um, what do you mean middle of nowhere? Is it what's what's the area like? Is it uh, pretty wooded or very wooded? Yeah. Very beautiful. Oh. I love it. Um, but you're also about 45 minutes away from what we call the town, which 
most city people probably <laughs> wouldn't consider town. What um, is the town? <laughs> um, it's just the local, like, the closest town that has, like, a mall and okay. a Walmart and, a, you know, all your necessities. Right. But if you're, if you're with um, thousands of other people... Okay. It doesn't feel like the middle of nowhere, or does it? Doesn't. No, but- it doesn't. And um, our community actually, uh, until like 20 years ago, it was mostly consisted of farmers. So everyone had their own farm. And so we have a lot of farmers markets and really small country stores. Mm-hmm. So unless you, I don't know, need to go shopping for that dress you want, you can pretty <laughs> much get anything you want in the community. And it's locally grown. That's wonderful. hmm um, so you said it, it used to be mostly composed of farmers. Uh, is there a shift away from that now? Or have other people moved in who aren't farmers or have farmers left? Or is the economy just different? I think it's the economy. Okay. Um, when you had, you know, the green revolution and mass agriculture and industrial agriculture, a lot of the smaller farmers couldn't make a living. Right. And so a lot of people have switched to different career tracks. So what are maybe what are some of those career tracks now? What did the people that you were growing up around um, tend to work in? Um, I guess um, most men tend typically go into like construction or the military or maybe a a business track. Um, And a lot of women tend to go into nursing or um, different type of office positions. So, you know, the. The job where you're happy, you know, you you have a good living, but you're not necessarily trying to, like, become the next millionaire. People are pretty content, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You enjoyed growing up there. What was your childhood like? Yeah, I loved growing up there. Um, So, like I said, I'm Hollowasa Pony. And uh, growing up in my community was great because I had the opportunity to learn a lot of my traditions firsthand. Um, so, like, I learned my language. I learned different dances. I was able to, you know, get to know my grandparents, which I didn't realize until, like, I went off to NC State and, like, mm-hmm. met people from different areas that a lot of people don't know their grandparents or their grandparents don't live close to them. So I didn't realize how lucky I was to yeah. have majority of my family, you know, right there with me within five minutes of a drive. So important. Mm-hmm. So true. Yeah. Especially coming from just speaking so much about the importance of stories, I guess a lot of us don't grow up anymore with the, well, we grow up with the stories, you know, from the media for that, that become our stories. But, you know, our our family stories, it's so true. There's a lot of people who don't really know their grandparents' stories or great-grandparents' stories or sometimes even really their parents' stories if you don't really take the time to sit down and really get to know, Mm -hmm. get to know that I agree. And they're, they're the best stories, the most interesting. I love hearing my grandparents talk yeah. about the good old days. <laughs> what what sort of things do they say about the good old days? Or what, what have you found a common across their stories? Um, like I said, a lot of people were farmers. So my grandparents were kids in very big families, uh, ranging from like eight to like 15 kids. So wow. a lot of kids yeah. on the farm. But then Big they told me... great, great grandmas. <laughs> <laughs> but they seem to really treasure their memories. Um, and even though maybe they were considered poor, they said they never knew they were poor mm-hmm. because yeah. they, were, they were happy with what they had. Yeah. So I love hearing their stories. They're very humorous. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, they, I mean, our, our grandparents grew up in... Uh, kind of a time where the the dreams of 
I mean, the collapse of the, like the Great Recession, the collapse mm-hmm. of the economy, and and things were different then. Right. I heard some great stories. My grandpa, like you could go out and buy a glass of wine for fifteen cents, and, yeah. and it was made from some like rotting fruit somewhere in Ohio. I mean, who knows? But you still had a pretty good time. But it's so true what you also said about you know the meaning of poor being different. Um, I know my own grandparents; they considered themselves really rich because they had a home and because they were able to eat meat uh, once or twice a week. With you know, and I give their kids meat every once. You know, it's such a I think our, our our whole definition of what it means to be rich and what it means to be poor has definitely shifted now. Yes, I agree. In in really problematic ways right. because you think you need stuff to be wealthy. I mean, it's it's tied to consumption, ideas of wealth tied to consumption, tied to the things you have. Um, in also in relation to others, right. uh, which I think gets us into a lot of trouble and a lot of debt. And a lot of kind of meaninglessness. Right. Internally. Which brings me to um, the fact that this week on Monday, I believe, we had um, at the University of Michigan, Wynonna LaDuke, an environmental activist who's Native American from North Dakota, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Um, And she, one of the, you know, she she was talking about a lot of different topics, but I think one of the big things that she kept talking about is sort of our culture and the fact that we, we feel that we need all these things in our lives, which ultimately are degrading the planet. Um, so Brittany, you told me that you listening to her, you know, you, you felt very impacted. How, how did you like her talk? How did you um, feel about the things she was saying? Um, I don't know. It kind of hit the reset button for me and reminded <laughs> me of like why I'm here and the passion that I have for my people. And it also showed me um, ever since I don't know, I've been in college and coming to Michigan and the different discussions that we have in class. I realized that I did grow up a bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I value that because, like she said, worth or having money or being happy is not necessarily, I guess, having the money. That's not the power. It's being content and being happy and being healthy. Right. And I feel like mm-hmm. I learned that in my community and going off and seeing where people necessarily may not see that. Uh, it just showed me that I should try to share my passion with other people. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. And have you thought about the ways you want to do that in the future? I know you're here studying sustainable systems. You're interested in energy. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm a bit of a nerd. <laughs> you don't have to apologize for that <laughs> Or a snerd, I should yeah, say now. That's right. <laughs> um, but ever since I was a little girl, I loved science. Like, uh, for career day in, like, third grade, I dressed up as a scientist and yes. loved doing the science fairs. <laughs> uh, and at first, I actually wanted to be a meteorologist. Oh, yeah, I, I can loved, see that. Yeah. I think that'd be a fun job. I love weather, um, but then I uh, saw, this is so cliche, but I saw the Al Gore Inconvenient Truth. Mm-hmm. I was actually at a summer math summer camp, which is super nerding. <laughs> <laughs> but I saw it and I was like, oh my gosh, all of this is happening and nobody's doing anything about it. And I'm sitting here and wasting so much energy and not recycling. And I, I felt like the little things I was doing were contributing to this. And I couldn't believe I didn't know what my actions were really 
mm-hmm. impacting. And so I became super passionate about it. And um, I knew I wanted to go to NC State because they have a great meteorology program. And then I found out they had a great environmental program. So I went to NC State. Um, and then once I got there, I realized that I was more interested in the energy side. Okay. And I had like an epiphany one day where I realized, well, I love my people. Like, this is why I'm going to school. A lot of a lot of people from my community don't go off to college. Okay. So I figure if I'm going off, I'm getting this education. I don't want to do it to become rich or right. um, to, you know, have my name become big in some industry. I did it because I want to bring something back to my community. Yeah. And once I realized energy is what I was passionate about, I was like, okay, well, I can merge my people and energy. Yeah. And I decided to be to look into um, renewable energy and empowering indigenous people to become energy independent. That's amazing. And, you know, we're often told that when we choose um, how to shape our careers and how to shape what we want to study in school, that we should just like look into our hearts, (laughs) as cliche as that is. (laughs) But yeah, just look at the things that really impact us and the things we care about just day to day. So I think that's actually brilliant that you decided to fuse the two things that you care about and know about. Mm -hmm. Um, So you... You, you would, I mean, is this something you kind of want to start in your own community? And, and what, how do you kind of envision yourself? Or have you seen any efforts in other indigenous communities? Like, oh, how, are, how are you seeing indigenous communities um, tackle energy projects in general? Well, um, in undergrad, I did an independent research project on solar energy potential for the Halawasaponi tribal territory and the eastern band of the Cherokee. And so that gave me hands-on experience using GA. GIS, but no, it's uh, basically like spatial modeling. Mm -hmm. Um, So I use that to spatially figure out where the solar radiation potential is for each tribal territory. And from my research, I realized that at least for the Halawasaponi tribe, you could displace about um, a third of your energy bill by putting a solar array on your home. Just wow. from the potential, yeah, for That's the incredible. area. And is that just because um, the area receives a lot of sun? or is, Yes, okay. it was different for the two areas because um, the Halawasaponi tribe was more flat terrain. Okay. And eastern Bay of Cherokee is in the Appalachian Mountains. So it was really variable okay. for the mountains. Um, but both tribes were really interested in it. And um, they want me to continue the project and possibly implement it. That's exciting. Yeah. And then um, as of for other tribes, I know the Navajo tribe, like they have their own huge solar farm. Um, there are other tribes I heard of in um, uh, California who have their own wind farms. There's a lot going on with renewable energy and indi- indigenous people. Um, and Winona LaDuke was talking about how she put solar panels on her own home. Right. Which I thought was awesome. Yeah, exactly. And how she that she told a really funny story about how she went to go ask the municipality a p- permission, whether she could go ahead and put up the solar panel. And she was denied permission because it was an eyesore. The solar panel would be too ugly to have because she lives on, I guess, right next to a beautiful lake. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... And she, you know, said she went home and she realized, why am I even asking permission? Yeah, why did I ask anyone? Why do I? Yeah, this is, and because I guess it's like autonomous territory. Also, well, yeah, she's on people. the tribal reservation. So she's like, state yeah, what no is, jurisdiction. Yeah. <laughs> what a kind woman. Uh, initially, uh, yeah. It's like if I painted my house bright orange, would anybody have a right to say that this was an eyesore? Right. That's yeah. probably, potentially. Anyway. Wow. 
And there's exciting opportunities also, like, to disconnect, to disassociate from these, like, massive energy grids, like, to have a choice, um, which I think which I think is cool. And, and certainly I'd love to see more of that going on in a variety of places. For sure. It also, I think, makes people a lot more aware if it is happening, you know, if, if there's a small scale community project, people also understand where their energy is coming from. And therefore, um, you know, when they turn on the light, when they use something it, it, that requires electricity, I think it's easier for us to make that connection as well. And right now we're quite disconnected. A lot of us don't understand at all where our water, our energy um, comes from. You know what the mm-hmm. source of that is. Exactly. Yep. Wow. Well, that's exciting. Well, we look forward to um, tracking your own career here <laughs> at the Thank University you. of Michigan to see the exciting things uh, that that you'll work on and, and come up with. And and we're very happy that you could join us today. Yeah. Thank you Thank so much. You. Wow. Thank you to Paul Stromberg as well for being our engineer. How are you doing over there, Paul? I'm doing. Just fine. Yeah, and he's he's doing the thumbs up, so you know that he wasn't just saying that to be no, silly. No, that was Paul excited and happy. <laughs> <laughs> he is smiling. That's wonderful. Well, if you want to hear this show again, maybe you just got the end and you didn't get this excellent conversation we had earlier uh, on the hour with Leanne uh, Lefsrud about telling stories and the importance of, of that and narratives, visit our website at hotinhere.us. That's hot in here, not us. It's that easy. And even if you heard the whole show, you should visit anyway and leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. Thank you. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. So we're going to go out on a tune here um, that Brittany suggested. This is uh, Silver Linings by Casey Musgraves. Lovely little tune. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend, y'all. Woke up on. 